Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, let's start by talking about your Mets. They finalized a deal with Max Scherzer last week, and their odds to win the World Series have dropped from 20 to 1 at the start of the offseason to 12 to 1 now. As the totally unbiased, unemotional Mets fan that you are, is that odds move an overreaction, an underreaction, or a proper reaction? Uh, well, I'd say it's an overreaction to an overreaction, Eric. Uh, okay. <laughs> if, if DeGrom and Scherzer are healthy, it's a big if, obviously. Uh, the Mets are top-heavy and shallow at the same time in starting pitching. Uh, they also lost left-hander Brandon Loop, who was the best southpaw reliever in baseball in 2021. Hmm. So the pen is short as well. I mean, re-signing Syndergaard or Stroman would have helped a lot, but – no dice so far, no replacement for them. Uh, hitting is now good and more versatile. I like that. They, But they led the NL and OPS Plus in 2020, and it wasn't enough then, was it? So, right. you know, with Mad Max, maybe 20 to 1 might tempt me with him, but not these odds, you know, 11 to 1. Um, sounds like Buck Showalter might might be the new manager, though. And while he's a bit long in the tooth for my taste, look at what Tony LaRusso and Dusty Baker did last year. So, hmm. You know, uh, Showalter's first years everywhere have been excellent. And the Mets weren't a complete laughingstock last year. So there's that. But, yeah, I'm still going to pass on this. Yeah, I'm right with you on the odds. I, I definitely wouldn't bet the Mets at 12 to 1 to win it all. 20 to 1 if I had gotten that before they got Scherzer. Mm-hmm. Now that they have Scherzer, 20 to 1 maybe. If, if you have a 20 to 1 ticket, I guess you should feel not great, but okay, I think, yeah. uh, right now. But, look, as a Phillies fan, I'm not worried about the Mets. I'm, I'm worried about the Phillies, who are usually their own worst enemy. And, uh, oh, yeah, I'm worried about the Braves, the, the world champs in our division who are young and who just won it without Ronald Acuna. Uh, the Mets, nah, mo- moves like this kind of just have a way of not working out for the Mets. Uh, I mean, uh, look at the NL East. Braves won the World Series in 2021. Nationals, 2019. Phillies, 2008. Marlins, 2003. Then you have to scroll all the way back to 1986 to find a Mets title. Uh, Sorry, John, I I don't have much. uh, You know, none of my teams are actually very good right now. So sometimes rooting against rival teams and rubbing it in uh, to their fans is all I have. Well, I mean, as you know, I was there behind home plate in Game Seven of the '86 <laughs> yes, World Series. Yes, as I know, which, yes, uh, that uh, is kind of comforting. And uh, they did win the pennant in 2015, uh, crushing the Cubs in perhaps the most lopsided uh, postseason series in in Major League Baseball history. A year before the Cubs finally ended their streak, so uh, there's been a little bit of success here and there. All right. Congratulations on uh, small victories, I suppose. Uh, yeah. fans. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 172 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 171 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. And please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. We are Mets and Phillies fans. You know, there's only so much disappointment we can take. Give us that five-star rating to ease our pain. 
And coming up a little later of the show, we're going to be joined by SBC Vice President of Growth and Strategy for the Americas, Sue Schneider. She's going to take us behind the scenes of what goes into putting on a major international gaming conference like the one in the Meadowlands last week. Uh, we'll also talk to Sue about sports betting's growth, diversity in the gaming industry, and a lot more. But first, it's been a reliably busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. What had been a somewhat slow news week suddenly got, as you said, reliably busy late Wednesday afternoon when almost out of nowhere, the Ohio legislature passed a sports betting bill that nobody outside that legislature had seen. But it passed 30 to 1 in the Senate and soon after 72 to 12 in the House. And as we record this, we're waiting on Governor Mike DeWine to sign it into law, but that is reportedly a certainty. So barring some shocking twist, sometime on or before January 1st, 2023, Ohio, the seventh most populous state in the country with 11.7 million people, will have legal retail and online sports betting. The legislation is similar to a bill that passed the Senate in the spring, but never received a vote in the House. Uh, some of the notable details, the Ohio Casino Control Commission is in charge. The tax rate is 10%. Esports wagering is included. No official league data requirement. And in total, there could be up to 25 online operators and 42 retail. Uh, just when we'd all kind of started to give up on Ohio, they pulled this together. John, what's your reaction to the news and any opinions on any of the details of the bill? Yeah, I mean, the only thing more shocking about a bill finally passing in Ohio is that it passed without any stupid provisions that I've noticed. Uh, mm -hmm. Other than 67 licenses are available, that's a little silly, but that's harmless, really. Um, usually, as soon as a bill stalls in any state, somebody realizes that if they just demand to get to wet their beaks, they can make a, a bill happen, and that's what the result is. It happened in 2011 in New Jersey when a ballot question to upend PASPA and get the whole sports betting expansion thing happened required that residents couldn't bet on Rutgers football or Seton Hall basketball games, for instance. That's not that consequential in the Garden State. And if Ohio, you know, barred mid-American conference football bets, well, it would be just the cost of doing business. But fortunately, it hasn't happened. Yeah. Um, so I, I have not read all 288 pages of the bill. I assume you haven't either, but uh, I've read the synopses like uh, Jeff Edelstein's on Sports Handle. It sounds like a bill with nothing too offensive in it. Um, yeah. I mean, a 10% tax rate, if anything, that's very low by current standards, but you know, it's uh, good for the betters. That means the sports hooks will be able to go all the way on promos and freebies to try to earn customer loyalty. Um, I love that they removed the official league data requirement. Uh, I prefer that that be a choice the sports books make, whether and who to pay for data rather than a mandate that effectively acts as a different version of the dreaded integrity fee. Um, plenty of operations Operators. As you said, 67 seems kind of a weird and uh, probably higher than it needs to be number, but uh, it's going to be a, a wide open market. Um, but look, Ohio had to get this done. The state was losing money to offshores and to all these border states, Ohio borders, Pennsylvania, sports betting legal there, Michigan check indiana check west virginia check only the folks closest to the kentucky border were out of luck but um you know all's well that ends well assuming that this gets signed nobody is going to ultimately care a few years from now that ohio could have gotten the job done a year or two earlier they're in the game now and uh 
boy, it's a busy time for operators, you know, getting ready to launch in New York, fighting for legality in California and Florida. And now they need to plan an attack for Ohio, too. There's a lot going on in these major populous states. Yeah, I would love to know someday, somehow, uh, what stalled this for so long, because uh, it's a great uh, sports, sports bad state, I would say. Mm -hmm. And it was advanced for a couple of years and it kept stalling. And then finally, when it actually gets to a full floor vote, it passes, you know, almost unanimously. So something was going on. And as I said, I don't, I don't see the, the wet beak that, you know, got it over the top that right. said, all right, we stall, 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 stall. And now we do it because X and there's seems to be no X here. So I'm stumped. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd be curious as well to if someone can dig up the details on what changed that that made all the difference. And also, I'd be curious to know more about the the one out of 32 in the Senate <laughs> who voted against it. Who who was that and what was their reason? And, uh, uh, you know, did they did they realize they were going to be the lone dissenting vote? I'd be kind of curious about that, too. Well, I'm recalling the 2013 or maybe 2012 vote on online casino gaming in New Jersey, which hadn't happened anywhere yet. And there was one lone vote. And it was just a guy who said, I don't really like the idea of somebody blowing the mortgage money, playing slots online, you know, in their bedroom, drunk at 2.30 in the morning (laughs) on a Friday night. And I was like, yeah, all right. I mean, that's not (laughs) crazy. I mean, you know, I kind of get it now yeah. obviously the, the 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 counter is that it's already happening anyway illegally so right. that's it but i mean without knowing the details of how much illegal gambling goes on in the country that to me struck me as a perfectly valid concern about i don't want people to do that so the question isn't whether that's crazy that you don't want people to do that because that's a great point it's just that it happens anyway that's so it, it ultimately wasn't a logical uh, no vote but it, it had a a, a sort of a well-intended core purpose to it. And maybe this guy did too, or Gal, of course. Right, (laughs) right, agreed. All right, moving on. Um, I wish I could scrub last week's episode from the internet because on it, I confidently assumed that the Hard Rock Sportsbook app in Florida would remain online for a while longer while the appeals process played out. Instead, the day after we recorded the pod, an appellate court denied the Seminole Tribe's appeal for a stay. And by Saturday morning, the Hard Rock Digital Platform was pulled. Uh, and after a glorious 33 days of wagering in Florida, it came to a halt. The Seminole Tribe says it's not done with the legal fight over the gaming compact with the state, but for now, it's shutting down the app, refunding player balances, quote, as requested, and voiding all unsettled bets. It's unclear what happens now for legal betting in Florida. The legal process could end in a decision in the Seminoles' favor approximately six months from now, although I believe, and I assume you believe, that that's unlikely. Uh, They could renegotiate the terms of the compact to include commercial sports books. There's also the effort to get commercial sports betting on the 2022 ballot for a possible 2023 launch, but the signatures are reportedly lagging way behind pace. Uh, John, any guess what the most likely outcome is? And did the Seminoles have any option other than to pull the app once the appellate court ruled the way it did? Well, I mean, it just feels to me, as I kind of noted last week, as if the Seminoles went all in with a bluff and the judges called mm-hmm. and the tribe did not go nuclear. And as in, like, we never signed a treaty with the U.S. We're a sovereign nation. You can't tell us what to do. I mean, what do we get the National Guard involved? I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, really kind of scary, but uh, the tribe's not going to win in any federal 
court based on IGRA and illegal precedent in terms of mobile sports betting. Just not. Um, but I'm not clear why. It, this is at the Department of the Interior failed on this front earlier, supposedly on behalf of the tribe. Uh, they didn't seek to be granted exemption to that sports betting uh, craps and roulette at its five or six retail casinos right. to take place, as you noted. Um, these are in the Fort Lauderdale and Tampa areas. So a lot of people with a lot of disposable income. I mean, that's a pretty good consolation prize that they could have had and I think still can have, yet they're not going there yet. Um, sure, mobile is 80 to 90% of the betting action in states that offer both versions, but retail betting in Central and South Florida would not be inconsequential. So, and absolutely nobody is claiming that that part of the compact with the state doesn't pass muster. So just take it. Um, again, the Department of Interior didn't fight for it. The tribe hasn't yet fought for it. They don't have it. And I don't get why. I mean, it's almost like conceding some sort of defeat, but guess what? You're beat anyway. So take your uh, consolation prize. Right. Yep. I, no, I think the, uh, the, the big, the big all in bluff analogy is, is absolutely dead on here. And um, I guess they reached the point where it wasn't worth uh, continuing to bluff. Uh, <laughs> just uh, walk away with a few chips that you still have. Um, yeah. I, I think the most fascinating potential scenario and not the most likely, but the, but the one that would give us the most to talk about would be if the Seminoles and the state came to the conclusion that they're not going to win in court with this compact. And they went back and worked out a new compact that includes the commercial sports books. That would be a pretty wild twist. Um, but I would think it's more likely that everyone digs in their heels and fights hard to block the other side. And, and the Florida does not have online sports betting at all for another year or two, at least. Um, very interesting wording that the Seminole tribe said they will refund balances as requested, that it's incumbent upon the betters to withdraw their money. I mean, I guess that makes sense. How else would you do it? But still, uh, there are going to be a handful of people who decide to leave their money on the site and then forget about it. And uh, so the Hard Rock app may may end up with a little something to show for all this. Um, as for the topic of voided bets, um, I feel for the betters to an extent um, like there was a tweet from someone who had bet on University of Cincinnati to win the national title in football mm -hmm. at 50 to one five weeks ago when the when the apps first launched. Now they're like 20 to one. He should have been able to either sweat out a good bet or cash it out now for a small profit. Instead, he just gets his money back. So I, I feel bad for someone like that, although. For every bet like that, there's someone who bet on, say, Ohio State, and uh, you know that was going to be a losing bet, but they get their money back too. Um, I guess though, I can't feel too bad for any of them because if they were paying attention to the controversy surrounding the compact, they had to know this was possible, and that placing any bets was risky, and placing futures bets was especially risky. So, I'm like 10% sympathetic uh, toward uh, toward people like that who are getting their bets refunded. Yeah, I mean, uh, 50 to 1 Cincinnati five weeks ago. I'm going to say that she was wise to try that one. <laughs> See, I don't think we can do the he, she here because I saw no. the tweet. I think it was a, uh, it was a uh, unless, you know, I guess you, you never know quite what to trust online. But I believe it appeared to be a male uh, tweeting. Well, I'm trying to be open minded. here. Right. Good. Good for you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, all right. We have to pivot now to a very sad and serious story. But one we can't ignore, even though it's more a sports story than a sports betting story. On Monday, the racehorse Medina Spirit died suddenly after a workout at Santa Anita Racetrack in California. Medina Spirit is the horse trained by Bob Baffert that won the Kentucky Derby 
but then tested positive for a steroid called beta-methazone. And there still hasn't been a ruling on whether Medina Spirit is disqualified. Uh, Medina Spirit's death is believed to be a, quote, probable cardiac event, although examinations need to be completed before any cause of death is official. This has shined a brighter spotlight on Baffert, who has had his share of both drug controversies and sudden fatalities. And of course, it shines a very negative light on horse racing overall and on betting on horses as drug controversies and disqualifications don't exactly fill bettors with confidence about the product they're risking money on. John, do you see this as a potential inflection point for serious change in the horse racing industry? Is it at least the beginning of the end for Baffert, do you think? Yeah, I mean, Medina Spirit was three and a half years old. I mean, sure, correlation does not guarantee cause and effect, but this looks very, very bad. You know, Baffert starting to seem like cyclist Lance Armstrong, who had backers in his corner for years, even as evidence mounted, mm. and eventually it crumbled. I mean, we're not there yet, but it's starting to feel like that. You know, the Horse Racing Safety and Integrity Act of 2020 was passed by Congress, and a provisions finally expected to be worked out by next summer, the last I heard, anyway. So all sorts of issues already are on the table, and perhaps this tragedy will indeed force the industry into stronger measures uh, against the doping and all of this stuff. I mean... I'm not 100% sure that it will, and that would be unwise for the industry. Again, they have to hear the footsteps. You know, yeah. people, you know, like to, a lot of sort of traditional people like to laugh at PETA and, you know, younger crowd, and they're concerned about animal welfare and all that. Well, A, you know, should you be laughing at them at all? And B, doesn't matter if you do or not. They're, 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 they're coming and they're not stopping. It's not changing. The concerns are going to increase. And if horse racing doesn't get out ahead of this, they're in big trouble. Yeah. Um, so I come at this from the perspective of a journalist who has, for more than 24 years, covered another dangerous sport that a vocal minority want to see outlawed, uh, boxing. Yeah. It's mm. it's different in that the boxer is a human making a choice and the horse is not making a choice. But there are fatalities in both sports, um, way, way more in horse racing than in boxing. Although, if you put together the relatively rare boxing deaths in combination with the number of boxers who, after their career is over, in their 40s or 50s enter significant cognitive decline. That's yeah. a big number. Um, anyway, in, in both sports, the goal of those running the sport should be to make it as safe as possible without making it something that nobody will want to watch. People will protest it no matter what. You try to look out for your athletes, be they human or horse, and you try not to give the protesters fuel. Um, as someone who's pretty neutral on horse racing, seems pretty straightforward to me that you need to get people like Baffert out of the sport. Uh, the, the track record there is just so lengthy. I think, I think the Lance Armstrong comparison is a good one. Um, but just from a betting perspective, I'm not sure any of this with Medina spirit matters. Um, most people, uh, not all people, but, but most people will keep betting on boxing, despite knowing that the scoring is sometimes horrendous or a, a boxer sometimes gets popped for PEDs. Sports like football and baseball remain far from clean, but bettors just go with it. I'm sure there are some people who bet on Mandaloon in the Kentucky Derby who are pissed they haven't gotten their money yet and might not at all. Uh, but um, look, uh, the great Larry Merchant several years ago uttered my favorite quote about boxing, and it applies to sports betting as well. Um, he said, nothing can kill boxing and nothing can save boxing. Um, same with sports betting. There will always be suspect elements and things we think should be improved, but it's not going away, even if uh, maybe 1% of 
people who bet each year suffer some controversial defeat that makes them want to stop betting. Uh, I, I think it's one of those things that you try to make horse racing, boxing, all sports, betting, et cetera, make it all uh, as good as you possibly can, but you're never going to get it perfect. And there are people who are just going to keep, uh, keep betting no matter what the product is. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, harness racing actually has a tougher track record than uh thoroughbred racing not on uh, deaths of horses but on whether races are fixed you know mm. uh, the feeling is that there's only so much a jockey can do to stop a thoroughbred horse right i mean like if the horse is going you, you can't you can't quite stop them but in harness racing there's a lot of strategy involved in trying to get around uh, the horse and, and with the drivers and the sulky and all that and even the meadowlands this past year has set up a, an issue where they're trying to force drivers to push themselves a little more because the feeling is that and i remember going to yonkers raceway a number of years ago and i had an exact and i asked one of the pr people you know what are my chances and that's only a half mile track so halfway through uh, the second turn uh, he says, well, if if your three gets ahead of the two right here, you know, this is with, uh, you know, hundreds of yards to go, you can't lose. And he did. And he said, well, there you're one. I mean, the, the rest of the race had to go, you know, 30 seconds or whatever it was. And I already won. It's just really strange. So um, harness racing is a bigger problem. But, uh, you know, overall, absolutely. I mean, the 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 inside feeling, if you talk to a rail bird in harness racing is, well, the problem isn't whether that race is ever fixed is the question is, do you know who is uh, in on the inside? Because right. if, if there is a, uh, a horse that's going to win and you know about it, you don't complain about it. So, I mean, uh, yeah, this is all gonna, it's never going away, but, um, as you say, we can, we can definitely improve the integrity of these sports and, uh, and more importantly, the safety of those who are participating. Yeah, definitely. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Last week on the podcast, John and I spoke about our experience at the SBC Summit North America in New Jersey. Well, that experience wouldn't have been possible without our guest this week. As SBC's Vice President of Growth and Strategy for the Americas, Sue Schneider is one of the primary people behind the scenes making SBC events like this happen. And she joins us now to provide a glimpse behind the curtain on such events and to talk a bit about the state of the gaming industry. Sue, welcome to Gamble On. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So I show up at the SBC Summit and it's all set up and running smoothly and there are food stations and conference rooms and booths. And I tend to just take it all for granted and not think about what went into it. Uh, what would you say is the number one thing attendees wouldn't realize about the challenge of putting on an event like this? And, and how much extra work and stress did the existence of COVID put on your plate? Well, I mean, it's, it's been a crazy year and a half, and, and I have to give credit to the SBC folks for being very nimble and kind of pivoting to the to the digital during that time. But everybody on staff is so glad to be back to, to real events in spite of, I mean, it's just a constant challenge. You never know when there's going to be some other announcement or some outbreak or something that's going to, um, you know, affect people's decisions and affect how the event is run. Frankly, I mean, you're constantly changing. You never, I mean, we, we, uh, with the, the events we've been running, we go by the guidance of the local health departments and whatever venues we're in. So, um, you know, and that can change at the drop of a hat. So it's always kind of a crapshoot to know exactly what you're going to end up dealing with. But, uh, you know, again, 
uh, we're fortunate to have a lot of really uh, good professional staff that uh, can can make a change on the fly if need be. Right. And what what about the the question of just uh, something that that goes into the preparation for this that maybe someone like me walking into the room doesn't realize or appreciate just uh, what a challenge it is with regard to putting on this kind of event? Well, you know, I think one of the things that's that's different about SBC is we finally decided that we should start calling our events all inclusive because really from morning through very late at night, uh, you know, people are taken care of with food and drinks and things like that. So that's really a little bit unusual, I think, from a lot of the events that are out there. Um, so there's a lot that goes into that. And I think probably the biggest challenge, and it's going to be a super challenge for our next one, is coming up with bigger and better networking events. I mean, this one was kind of off the charts with the access to the MetLife field and being able to attempt catches and and uh, field goal kicks and things like that. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen so many uh, LinkedIn videos of people, you know, <laughs> with their celebration dances at the end of those when they actually were able to connect. So, um, you know, I think that's what's maybe a little bit different for SBC because they do place such value on those evening events. And I've, I've gotten to the point now, if somebody is new to it, I, I let them know, it's like, don't, you know, don't bother to be setting up things offsite um, in the evenings because you're, you're going to be messing out on things that way. Yeah, Sue, uh, speaking of that, I went to one of those uh, evening events uh, uh, in Manhattan, the 4040 Club, and uh, I kind of walked in and I thought this is either Paris or Madrid, I'm not sure, but uh, it's a kind of a discotheque and uh, the European influence was extensive. Uh, and I was really surprised just because you know, my vague impression was that the a lot of the restrictions weren't lifted until a couple of weeks before. So I figured, well, unfortunately, it's a bad break for this event because it's really too late for people to get over here. And then you go to that event in particular, but really for the whole week, you could see it was a, a remarkable number of Europeans were able to come. So were they kind of a lot of them last minute or were some countries maybe uh, a little ahead of the curve on not being banned that I don't realize? Or you know, and, and overall, how did you how did the attendance level compare to, say, 2019? Well, it was about uh, about a third higher than 2019 wow. in terms of our numbers. Um, and and yes, we, we ran our Latin American uh, inaugural event in Miami in October, and we did have to deal with that, um, those restrictions. So, um, you know, it is something that you have to deal with. And again, it's changing all the time. But shortly after that is when they finally put a date on when they were going to lift those travel restrictions. I believe it was November 9th or so. And so we were celebrating when we knew that was happening because that, that would uh, change the dynamics a little bit. There is so much interest uh, from folks in across the pond in, in what's going on here. And they've become good partners with a lot of the operators and suppliers and, and you know, providing good services. So they, that, that was an important component. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it was last minute I mean, we were surprised and, and the, the registrations were continuing to come in as we got started. So, yeah, is it fair to say this is the most uh, kind of international uh, U.S. event in, in gaming? Uh, I would say, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at some of the bigger ones, you know, again, G2E uh, does have some international component, but that tends to be more North American, probably more than than others. Um and in terms of one this size, yeah, we, we have a big uh, international contingent that comes. I should, I, it would have been interesting to look up how many countries we did have represented because it was, uh -huh. it was pretty much across the board. Wow. 
Um, so moving beyond uh, just uh, this particular event and uh, talk, we'll talk a little bit about some general industry topics. I mean, you've been in and around this industry for a long time, since 1995, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. In all that time, have you ever seen growth on par with how the reversal of PASPA has spurred expansion these last three and a half years? And on a related note, as long as we're talking sports betting, I'm curious, do you personally have online sports book accounts or, or is that not your thing? Well, I'll, let me tackle that one first because that's okay. my dirty little secret. I don't gamble um, okay. <laughs> other, than, other than on business ventures. So, um, you know, it, it's kind of funny because, you know, even early on when I, because I had another company called River City Group and we did Geeksy and EIG and a number, number of international events aimed at iGaming. And even then a lot of it was sports betting. And I seem to have a resistance to even learning about odds and, I, you know, people have tried to explain it to me a number of times. And I just really don't want to know, you know, I'm, I'm more concerned about how the industry flows together and that whole ecosystem and things like that. So I don't really need to know that part. Okay. Um, but in, in terms of the growth, you know, again, I started in 99 doing iGaming events all internationally, not in the U.S. And we saw pretty decent growth in that regard from, from then till the time that I sold it. And in 2006. So I've seen something comparable to this, but certainly nothing in North America and nothing, you know how frustrating it's been for people to watch the iGaming legalization, which has been incredibly slow. What over mm -hmm. six years, I think we're only at still six, maybe seven states that allow internet gaming, a casino, casino games. Right. So, um, you know, when you look and, and the same with poker, I mean, look how long it's taken to, to really allow online poker to, to uh, get legalized. So this has been extraordinary. Um, and it, it really has been a fun thing to watch. And it's, it's also an opportunity, you know, I, like I, I really was kind of pretty retired and I, and now I'd say semi-retired because it just was too fun an opportunity to pass up in terms of what this could be and, and what kind of, uh, you know, ecosystem can grow because now we're talking teams and leagues and things like that, that had you asked me 10 years ago, I would say you're dreaming. Right. That's <laughs> not going to be part of it. So how, how does it compare with had I asked you three and a half years ago, right after the Supreme Court's uh, ruling, you, you, you didn't then. expect this much this no, fast? I did not. I, I really didn't think it was going to be legalized. And if it wasn't for the persistence of New Jersey and the and the many folks there that had a piece, you know, in that in that whole process, um, we'd still be back there. Yeah, I got to tell you, Sue, uh, I'm one of those people who I used to be betting $2 a game the last couple of years and my colleagues have shamed me and now I'll tend to put $10 on a Woo! one ball game, which uh, is very <laughs> risky cute. in my mind. But uh, it is funny how many people in the industry don't gamble at all, or yeah. if they do, they like me, we don't, we don't risk actual money. We, you know, we might put a toe in the water, but we don't, we don't even put a foot in much less go up to our <laughs> waist. So, yeah. uh, but I want to well, ask I, you about, I, I, I think the one thing in that regard that I think more people tried to play poker that was the one product, gambling product, that I think more people took a crack at than anything else. But I think you're right. Yeah. I want to ask you, too, about uh, there's a lot of talk in not only the gaming industry, but really every industry in the U.S. and arguably around the world about being more inclusive, more diversity, uh, people of color, women and all that. And I'm curious, uh, you know, your take so far as best you can on how well is the U.S. gaming industry in particular doing in terms of uh, not only bringing people into the industry itself and then also, uh, you know, promoting to the highest levels, which is, uh, you know, arguably even a more uh, challenging issue where you look at the number of uh, women at the highest levels is very small 
mm-hmm. you know, compared to even the number of women in the industry. So, you know, are a lot of these companies doing well? Is it a mix or are they failing or what do you think overall? Well, I don't know if you had a chance to, to hear Jan Jones' keynote. She was pretty forthcoming about we have a long way to go with that. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I think that's accurate. I think, frankly, I think where you see more uh, opportunity and a, a better set of numbers is in some of the startups and some of the smaller companies. So, uh, you know, it's, it's growing. But, you know, if you're looking at CEOs, you can, uh, I, I think we've been trying to track it internationally, even within the gaming industry. And I think... Uh, Kelly Ken and I have, have um, who is with SBC, but she's also a founder of All In Diversity, which uh, tries to quantify that within the industry. They have a survey that they do, which is really interesting. But, you know, I think we've pulled together as many as like 23 female CEOs, and that's globally. So we, we have a, a very long way to go. But yeah. the other thing that's interesting is I think Maybe this will change, but um, I, you know, I, I, when it comes to sports betting, I don't think people are really looking at, at women as a market very much yet. There's a little bit of that, and there are some people that are starting to do marketing and catering to because, you know, if you go to a game, there are a lot of women there. Uh, so you would have to think some of them are interested in in maybe betting on that. But uh, you know, I think the, both the consumer side as well as the uh, management side within these companies really need to take a look at that much more uh, seriously. Yeah, so I'm looking thinking back to the mid 1980s. Uh, I can recall the newspaper industry and sports departments were getting interested in, in finding more diversity. And the biggest problem they had was the lack of applicants, uh, particularly women, uh, because uh, to be a pro beat writer as I was, um, first of all, it's a kind of a young person's game, and also. Uh, it, the travel is extensive, and that uh, put off a lot of uh, potential female candidates that didn't, didn't want to do that or felt like they couldn't do that. But also the literal logistics of you're going into a post-game locker room with a lot of naked men. It's it's gross for men, and it's beyond awkward for women. It's it's horrible for everybody. Now, back then, before the internet, it was really a logistical uh, timing issue. If you were going to wait 45 minutes until somebody was showered and shaved and all dressed up going to a podium, you missed your main deadline for the next day's paper so mm-hmm. there's a, there was a reason why it had to happen but there also was a reason why women you know couldn't get involved but what about women in gaming or are, are young women um sort of as interested in getting into this industry as men are or is there something I, I, something less I'm finding know? so and and you know we work with uh, um some folks who are recruiters and and they really are making an effort at that um and it's actually it's a good time for a yeah. woman or any you know a minority or someone the diversity initiatives, at least on paper, are there now. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they begin to operationalize those and make those a reality, it's actually a very good time for um, you know, someone who is not a white male to, to jump into an industry like that for that reason. Yeah. And uh, we, can, uh, we can safely say to any uh, women out there uh, listening who are contemplating getting into this industry, you never have to enter a single locker room in order to cover uh, the sports gambling industry. <laughs> yeah, I, I found that to be true. <laughs> Well, this has been uh, really fun, uh, really informative. We appreciate you uh, joining us, Sue. I'll note for our listeners that they can find you on Twitter at Susie Q Schneider. So S-U-Z-I, the letter Q, and then your last name. Um, Anywhere else you would direct people to go to keep up with you or learn more about SBC? Uh, That's a good start. That's a good start. All right. Great. Well, uh, again, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the podcast. Uh, It's been great talking to you. Well, thanks to you guys. I had fun. Two men. Two men.
$10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly, but first, let's update our betting bankroll. And after a $1 loss two weeks ago, we bounced back last week with a whopping $10 win. Uh, John, you split your two college football bets. You had two favorites. Cincinnati covered. Oklahoma State didn't. That cost us the VIG. We dropped 10 bucks. As for me, my boxing underdog bets both lost. Jojo Diaz and Sergio Garcia both lost competitive decisions. We had $40 on each of them. But my under bet on the Chiefs-Broncos game won with a couple of touchdowns to spare, so we profited $100 on that. So my bets finished plus 20, John's finished minus 10, we won 10 bucks, leaving (laughs) us down by $1,724. We still have $1,360 on hold in futures bets, so that means we have $6,916 available to bet with this week, and you're up first, John. Well, you can read more about Saturday's Army Navy game in my preview that's coming up on Friday on uh, nyonlinegambling.com, right? Yeah. Yep, the new that's site. the web address. Yep. All right. But uh, I'll get a jump on it. Note that the under is covered in the, this game for the past 15 consecutive contests, which is amazing. Uh, cold weather and run centric offenses have mostly been the culprits. And this year, that over under has dropped to roughly 34 and I'll go 110 to win a hundred on that number. I say roughly because I can't legally bet on this game due to being played this year at MetLife stadium in New Jersey. So I'll make a phantom schlep over to resorts world Catskills <laughs> casino only about an hour away and virtually make the bet there. So now while the under keeps coming in, it's not like it's 35 or 34 points every year. In fact, there have been 38 or more points scored in eight of the last 15 army Navy games. So the, over-unders used to be higher and you could stake in. It's getting awfully low. So sure, it's going to rain in the Meadowlands. It'll be a uh, probably a local record 65 degrees uh, with winds of 10 to 20 miles an hour. Okay, that ranges from manageable to difficult when I go from 10 to 20. But look, Army rushes for a silly 300 yards per game and is 8-3. and three. Well, 3-8 three and eight Navy, well, they don't score points. And they lost this game 15 nothing last year. But as my childhood friend used to tell me, you're never out of it with the over. As I learned midday Sunday, I thought my over 44 and a half points in the Michigan-Iowa game was a loser, but the Wolverines made their boosters, and I don't mean a COVID shot, happy with a garbage time <laughs> touchdown with 95 seconds left and a 42-3 to three win on Saturday. So uh, I guess you're really never out of it. So that's why I'm going over 34, I think, 110 to 100. All right, trying to buck the trend and take the <laughs> over in Army-Navy. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to give us a, a, a game where we can root against points being scored uh, as I try to extend my NFL points total over under winning streak to three in a row. Uh, The game that jumps out at me this week is the Jags at the Titans. I like under 44. Um, It's actually dipped to 43 and a half at most books, but I can still get 44 minus 110 at Caesars. Um, In their last six games, the Jaguars have averaged just 10.67 points scored per game. They've won just one of those six games. And in that one, they scored nine points. (laughs) in victory. Um, This offense is just awful, but the defense is so-so. The Titans, meanwhile, they do appear to be getting Julio Jones back, but they're still without A.J. Brown. They're still without Derrick Henry. This is a struggling offense that has put up just 13 points in each of the last two weeks. They should do better on offense at home against the Jags, but I still can't see a high-scoring affair. Even if the Titans get to like 27, 
Are the Jags really going to get to 17? I think this is likely to be something like 24-13. Uh, so let's bet 110 to win 100 on under 44 points. All right, sounds good. Now I have to go for the Grey Cup here, as in the Canadian mm. Football League Championship game. You know, gone are the days of yore when the Ottawa Rough Riders, two-word nickname, and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, one word, uh, <laughs> would have head-to-head battles. The Rough Riders live on. But this game features a second consecutive cup showdown between the Hamilton Tiger Cats, note the hyphen, and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, two words. Uh, After reading the USBets.com preview by Greg Warren, our new Canadian colleague, Mm -hmm. uh, I like the Blue Bombers. As Greg notes, the Bombers held off the Rough Riders last week, 21-17, in spite of turning the ball over six times. So 110 to win 100 on the Bombers, minus three and a half points on the road. And if I split yet again, by the way, I promise I'll make next week's best lopsided to avoid that uh, 100-100 fate. Okay. Um, For my second bet, I'm going to boxing. Now there's nobody fighting this weekend who shares a name with any famous golfers. Uh, So (laughs) instead I'll turn my attention to a battle between Filipino fighters in the main event Saturday on Showtime. I'm fairly confident that future hall of famer Nanito Donaire will defeat Raymart Gabayo. The books have about the same price on whether it's going to be by knockout or by decision. I like the knockout side at plus 140. Uh, Donaire, even at age 39, is a great puncher and a great finisher. And Gabayo got wobbled multiple times by a much lesser puncher in his last fight. So let's go with Donaire by KO, but we'll keep it small, $50 to win $70. And we finish the show with the Fast Five, where to steal from your sharp observation last week, We both went two and three on the week, which means I elevated my winning percentage. Um, We had uh, two shared picks, uh, Atlanta and Miami. We went one and one on those. I won our head-to-head when the Steelers squeaked one out against the Ravens, but I lost my other two. You split your other two, so I improved, in a sense, to 23 and 42, while you slipped to 35, 29, and one. Hopefully, we'll both do better this week, and you're up first with your picks, John. Yeah, so I finally charted my 2021 picks uh, team by team, and I found that I've yet to pick against nine different teams all season. Hmm. Well, the only one I haven't picked four yet is the Bengals. Um, Five and oh in Jaguars games, betting against them four times and just two and five in Saints games, even after a recent winning pick against them. And I'm not sure what any of that means. So, <laughs> so onward we go with all five picks in the early window as it happens. Uh, and there's another trend you'll notice. Uh, Raiders plus nine and a half at Chiefs. Yes, Kansas City's defense has got his act together, but the offense still makes big mistakes. And the Raiders season feels like it's on the line. It's nice to get two scores in a divisional game for sure. Jets plus six for Saints. Uh, uh, Mark Ingram seems to be out. And while Alvin Kamara has returned to practice, I don't see him lighting it up in his first week back if he even plays. Then Falcons plus two and a half at Panthers. Another bet against a team with no quarterback. And in this case, definitely no star running back in Christian McCaffrey. Uh, then football team plus four versus Cowboys. Shorting in another stud running back in Zeke Elliott. Because I don't think he'll be near full strength in spite of these optimistic reports this week. Uh, team again dominates in time possession and hangs tight in this divisional game. And finally, Texans plus seven and a half versus Seahawks. Props to Seattle for a 73-yard TD and a fake punt last week in the first quarter. But it took gimmicks like that to up in the Niners. There's another tasty hook here. 
Interesting. So we are actually uh, choosing a lot of the same games, not always the same sides, though. Um, I'll try to do short and sweet this week since, let's face it, my logic and reasoning is of little value to our listeners. All they want is the picks so they know which teams to fade. Um, so uh, first up, uh, one we agree on. The Chiefs continue to be overrated. Not even a five-game winning streak can convince me otherwise. A lot of luck, a lot of flukiness. A much improved defense, I'll give them that, but I don't trust them at all to cover nine and a half. So give me the Raiders getting nine and a half. Um, so I was under the impression that uh, Alvin Kamara is indeed coming back this week. Uh, so that's why uh, I like the Saints giving six on the road against the disastrous Jets defense. Uh, so I'll take the other side of that one, New Orleans minus six. Um, I already talked about the Tennessee Jacksonville game, gave you my 24 to 13 score prediction. So it follows that I should take the Titans side, giving eight and a half points. And uh, by the way, we can clinch our Jags under six and a half wins bet with a loss here. Um, but uh, we also still need two rushing or receiving touchdowns from Trevor Lawrence in the last five games to cover over three and a half TDs. So a few different rooting interests in this one. Um, next, I'm with you on the football team, getting four points at home against Dallas. I might like Washington plus four on the road right now in this matchup. So I'm definitely jumping on it at home. And uh, lastly, I'm uh, picking a side in the big Bucks bills showdown. The Bucks are on the wrong side of the hook uh, at minus three and a half, but I still like them here. Uh, that three and a half point spread. They're daring me to take the bills. I'm not falling for it. The Bucks are five and zero oh at home with an average margin of victory of 22 points. The Bills have to be deflated by that awful loss against the Patriots Monday night. Short week to get ready for this one. Give me Tampa Bay. Yeah, that was my sixth pick, Eric, actually. Yeah, oh, all right. So you should be kind of scared this week that we are yeah, uh, of the same mind on a, in a few <laughs> different spots. All right. That'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Sue Schneider. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. So my typical sentiment about college football is that the top teams play three or four cupcakes early in the season and sometimes regret when they do play one good unexpected opponent. But I'm coming around a little bit on that lack of, uh, you know, non-conference scheduling. Now that I wonder if Cincinnati belongs in the same field with Alabama, even with the Bearcats win over one lost Notre Dame and their unbeaten record, I really don't know. So likely I watched that game on New Year's Eve, depending on my social calendar. But look at college basketball, where a team like Gonzaga used to give you only a whiff of how good they might be before March Madness. A little intrigue. This year, they've already played UCLA and Duke in November. I mean, it seems like every top 25 team is playing a bunch of non-conference basketball peers. Sometimes, I think too much of a good thing is not a good thing. So, I don't want to see a rematch of an early season men's hoops game in the Final Four any more than I want to see another Alabama-Georgia football match in a few weeks. To tie it to your boxing sport, Eric, uh, if Georgia wins the rematch, let's make them play one more time against Alabama to determine the real champion. So to sum up, I'm taking to my inner curmudgeon now, like a duck to water. There's just no pleasing me, apparently. So, <laughs> And with that, until next time, gamble on.